0: The far middle, in the middle of May. You would be hard-pressed to find a better combination than that. And a belated Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. I hope you had a great and enjoyable Sunday with family. Different variations of a day to honor mothers have existed for thousands of years across different parts of the world. But Mother's Day in the United States, as we know, it started around 1907 by a lady named Anna Jarvis at a church in a small town known as Grafton, West Virginia. Grafton isn't too far from me. I work with a few people from Grafton, West Virginia, and it might have taken a while to catch on and be officially recognized, but today, of course, Mother's Day is recognized in all 50 states across America. I bring you The Constant Listener, Episode 104. Our dedication will speak to a player, or maybe a better term would be a phenomenon, who blossomed this week in May back in 1976, and this player probably had a lot of rabid female fans back then in their teens who ended up being moms of today that we celebrated last Sunday. Um, this player became a national sensation on a pitching mound by doing two things. The first and most important was that he pitched lights out during the 1976 season. But the second thing he did were antics and theatrics that he employed when on the mound. Then, when you couple them with his matter-of-fact normal guy persona, they just made for instant stardom. I'll give you one final hint as to who this dedication is for. We had prior episodes in the far middle that we dedicated to athletes that had nicknames of animals. There was Ted Hendricks as the Mad Stork, um, Jerry Tarkanian as Tark the Shark. Uh, Those are two from prior episode dedications that come to mind. And we had a dedication or two that involved a guy whose last name was Bird, as in Larry. But this is the first dedication in far middle history that goes to a player with the nickname of The Bird. Yes, that's right. For those of you who are old enough to remember that summer of 1976— The dedication for episode 104 goes to Mark the Bird Fidrich, and when he first took flight on the national stage back in 1976, this week in May. The Bird became a national phenom during a golden era of baseball, and that's no offense to the 1950s, but to me, the golden era of baseball was the 1970s. Um, I was a kid, a little kid at the time in 1976. That's the year I started my first year of baseball cards that I got out of a Kmart vending machine in the Kmart lobby. I was learning the game by playing it and watching it that summer. And you had Vidrich, who was a tall, lanky, right-handed New Englander who ended up being drafted by the Tigers. And he started in their minor league system. And when he was in the minor leagues, he played for a team in those minor leagues managed by someone who went on to great managerial feats in the majors years later. That manager was Jim Leland. But Fidrich, he got his nickname, The Bird, in high school because with his height and his um, long curly blonde hair, he looked like Big Bird of Sesame Street fame. I still have the Sports Illustrated cover of Fidrich and Big Bird. They appeared together on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I got it at home that was signed by him, signed by Fidrich, that is, not Big Bird, but I'm also a fan of Big Bird. And Mark Fidrich, he got called up to the Tigers at the start of that 76 season. The tipping point for him came on May 15th when he threw a two-hit complete game and a 2-1 win against the Cleveland Indians. He wasn't an overpowering pitcher, but he had great control, and he acted a bit crazy, a little eccentric on the mound, which just added to his appeal. He would talk to the baseball. Um, He would pile dirt into little piles on the mound. He would throw balls back to the ump because he said the balls had hits in them. Um, He was a pitcher who then became a pitcher with a personality, But by midseason, Fidrich was a personality who happened to be a pitcher. Now, he went on an epic tear all season long in 1976. He became the second rookie to start the All-Star Game in the history of baseball. Um, He won the American League Rookie of the Year Award. He led all of the major leagues in ERA in 1976, and he led the American League in complete games at 24. That's 24 complete games in one season. So the current Major League Baseball career leader who's active in complete games is Adam Wainwright at 28. It took Adam Wainwright 17 years to accumulate 28 complete games. Fidrich posted 24 complete games in a rookie season. My goodness, how the game of baseball has changed. In Fidrich's 18 home starts in 1976, just to give you a feel for how popular, how much of a phenomenon he was. In his 18 home starts, the Tigers averaged almost 34,000 fans a game. The team drew an average of only about 14,000 fans in his non-starts. Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, invited him to his party. Elton John invited him backstage at a Detroit concert. Aqua Velva hired him on for commercials. Again, I was a kid in a National League city in Pittsburgh, but I knew that year, that summer, when he was scheduled to start and watched or listened to what I could. Everybody was doing the same thing. He was huge, but he was humble. He received massive amounts of fan mail, and his worry was that he wouldn't be able to afford the postage to respond to the letters because he made, in 1976, $16,500. He didn't live large. He lived small and frugally. Now, he injured a knee and then his rotator cuff the next season, and he was never really the same after that. He ended up going back to his uh, New England hometown, and helped his mom run a local diner, and he worked on his farm. He was killed tragically in an accident when he was working on an engine by himself on his farm when he was 54 years old, and to the day he died, Mark Fidrich displayed the positive, happy attitude from his rookie season back in 1976. He never lost that. In baseball, it's become a game of pitch count and contact speed and launch angle I miss baseball in the 1970s and the early 1980s, when it was a much simpler game, but one that had much more personality than today's. No one better epitomized that era and what it represented than Mark the Bird Fidrich in 1976, and therefore, that's our dedication for episode 104. Now, Mark Fidrich once said, "'Sometimes I get lazy and let the dishes stack up, but they don't stack up too high. I've only got four dishes.'" Well, let's connect to that quote from the bird in the 1970s to a situation today where we got lazy, very lazy, when it comes to the all-important field of healthcare, and how unlike the Fidrich kitchen of monkish frugality in four plates, the laziness in healthcare efficacy is stacking up to a nearly infinite height of waste, measured in the billions, and cumulatively, one could argue, as I will shortly, in the trillions of dollars. Along with, of course, who knows how many lives that are negatively impacted by a healthcare system that is less efficient than it could or should be. And I've got some brutal math for you. So, first, let's recognize in America that we pay much more, way more, for healthcare than other developed nations, which maybe could be, might be understandable if Americans enjoyed better outcomes via high life expectancies or better quality of life and health conditions, et cetera. But we do not enjoy such things. In fact, even the wealthiest Americans in the better-to-do regions or counties of this nation, they have health care outcomes that are worse than the average, the average citizen of other or similar developed nations. And even with that poor set of outcomes for Americans when it comes to their, their health conditions, how much more do we pay? Well, in the United States, we pay almost $13,000 per person per year on healthcare. Other comparable nations pay just over $6,000 per person per year. That's right, we pay in America over twice per person what other developed nations pay for healthcare. And we get worse healthcare outcomes. Not exactly, I think, what you were hoping to see. And let me put the over 100% difference per person per year on healthcare spend, let me put that in perspective for you. The exact number comes out to $6,800 per person more in healthcare spend in the United States. So you multiply that $6,800 by 330 million people in the United States, and you come up with the grand total of $2.3 trillion. $2.3 trillion. That's a lot of money. And I bet if you stacked $100 bills that totaled up to $2.3 trillion, it would be much higher than Mark Fidrich's four plates in his kitchen sink. Now, why are Americans having to spend $2.3 trillion more each year on healthcare for worse results than in comparable nations? Well, it's by design. Government, policy, academia, and large corporations, they've created an oligopoly in healthcare where the free market and competition no longer prevail. The healthcare system's designed to appropriate value and curry favor to protect the system. It's not designed to provide optimal patient outcomes at minimal cost. And like similar instances we have delved into in prior far middle episodes and examples there have been in energy and higher education with college tuition, um, government creep and so on. This didn't happen with healthcare overnight, but instead it happened over decades. And it took us a while to morph the healthcare system into what it has become But taming this Frankenstein, now that we've built it, it's not going to be easy or quick to put into reverse. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's take the example of medical journals, including the most prestigious out there today. When a major drug company has a drug clinical trial study published in the medical journal, it's not uncommon to have that drug company ghostwrite the article or to provide its own statistical analysis of the clinical trial results. Now why is that? That seems like a clear conflict. So why doesn't the medical journal require the drug company to defer to the peer review process so that an objective analysis can be presented in the journal? Well, the answer might not shock you, constant listeners, it's because of money. Medical journals make much of their money off of sales, especially reprint sales of issues, of prior issues. And guess who buys and orders all those reprints of those prior issues? Yep, those big drug companies who were the ghostwriters for the articles on clinical trials. They buy reprints and they distribute them to help market the drug. You're starting to see why there is a drug for everything these days, aren't you? But there are other root causes of the 2.3 trillion pile of wasteful healthcare spending. Insurance. Let's talk about that. It shields the patient from out-of-control costs, at least direct exposure. So the patient ultimately, of course, will be exposed to high costs indirectly over time. But at the time of the service or the prescription or the visit, typical patient with insurance has no clue or no care what it costs. And again, that's probably at least in part by design from the perspective of the special interests in the healthcare space. And there's also another root cause that falls in the category of mismatch between spend and research investment. Our system puts 90 plus percent or so of the research investment in healthcare toward drugs and devices, which are only about 15% of total healthcare costs, which means less than 10% of research investment is made in areas that comprise 85% of healthcare costs. It's a mismatch from the perspective of wellness and the health of the patient, but maybe there's not as much profit for a large, let's say, pharmaceutical company in wellness compared to the profits in a new drug. And on the topic of new drugs, the data here are really ugly. When I first saw these data, I didn't believe them. Heck, I'm not sure if I believe them now, but let me give them to you. Fifteen years ago, the average price of a new drug was just over $2,100 in the United States. A couple of years ago, that average price for a new drug jumped to $180,000. That's an 85-fold increase in just over a dozen years. Oh, and last year, 2022... Average new drug costs clocked in at $257,000. That's a 40 plus percent jump from 2021. This is the textbook definition of out of control, constant listeners. And a guy who does great work in this field, if you're interested in sort of following up and learning more, is Dr. John Abramson. He practices medicine. He teaches at Harvard. He wrote a number of books on this topic. He knows his stuff check him out if you give a ch- if you get a chance and again his name is Dr. John Abramson. This topic of healthcare costs running out of control coupled with poor health outcomes for patients and Americans it connects to a theme that we've discussed at different times and in different contexts on the far middle. And this is the type of erosion we have seen across many industries and sectors of society. You start with a competitive free market sort of survival of the fittest industry where prudent risk-taking is rewarded and consequences of failure exist. It's not perfection by any stretch, but it works, and it's accountable, and it gets better over time, and it's the essence of a capitalistic free market economy. But then here comes the bureaucrat or the ideologue of the left that will use the cover of what? The public good, the greater good, the planet in some instances, the public interest, equity, and so on. You know all the buzzwords. And they're using those to do what? To force policy bit by bit, incrementally over time, to start tightening its grip and controlling the system. And the system starts to morph from competitive meritocracy to unaccountable oligopoly. Efficacy suffers. The client, customer, or patient suffers, which are only used by the left to argue that the solution to those ails, right, and to that ailment is to double down on the failing policies that they proffered. And then major corporations in the industry or significant players, other stakeholders of influence, they see what is happening and where the direction is heading. What do they do? They then start to develop business models that look to lobby and curry favor with the bureaucrats so that the wiring is set to game the system and maximize the value appropriation for the influential and conflicted few. And before you know it, the system becomes a tightly controlled one. Where the controllers benefit and the rest of us pay for it in cost and efficacy. That's where U.S. healthcare has evolved to, and that is where our energy grid is going to, and government from the local to the national, and the capital markets with banking, and higher ed with college tuition, and public education with public unions, and so on and so on. Costs go up and up. Impactfulness of the endeavor drops lower and lower to when it fails. And then failure is rewarded, and the march continues until everything crashes in on itself. Capitalism is not the true problem when you assess what is happening here. It's just the fall guy. Strangling the free market and competitive market and then replacing them with an oligopoly of special interests controlled by government, that is the true problem. Uh, what's going on with American healthcare and the troubling math that consumes it? How this oligopoly created, enabled, and controlled by government takes control of industries like healthcare and then demotes the interests of the consumer or the patient, the taxpayer, or the superior product or better company, these are certainly big issues, but they are symptom issues. They're symptoms of an underlying root cause, an underlying ideology that permeates more and more of Western economies and societies and cultures, and that, of course, is the religion of the left. And I'd like to take us to a connection that discusses one of the most critical tactics that the left was able to bring to bear to infiltrate government and academia. Now, those two arenas are important because if you seize the mindset of government and academia, you position the ideology to play the long game and start to slowly subsume all other areas of commerce and culture and societal norms. And you can start to grind away at materially evolving and permanently altering something like the healthcare industry as an example, as well as all kinds of other industries and institutions. So let's connect to two big movements on the left in the West that historically have made much of our government and academia those useful instruments of socialism and communism today. And the first, and where we'll spend most of our time to discuss is the Fabian Society, which got its start in England in the late 1800s. And the mission of the Fabian Society It was both diabolical and genius. It was to secretly and in sort of a subliminal way interject socialism across British society and in the institutions to erode confidence in capitalism. So Fabianism had celebrity supporters in the early 1900s in England, and most notably the author H.G. Wells, as well as the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw, who lived in England at the time. They were huge, sort of founding members, I would almost put it, of Fabianism. And I just said that the Fabians went about their mission in sort of a subliminal way. Specifically, Fabians did not subscribe to the classic Marxist tactic of violence or class warfare or some sort of a forceful revolution. Now, they were smarter than classic Marxists when it came to their tactics Fabians went about their business by listing the key institutions that influenced society and informed policy, and that drove the economy. Then the Fabians went about infiltrating those institutions almost silently. Government and academia, they were at the top of that targeted list, of course, just to make the point on how methodical the Fabians were at maneuvering behind the scenes so as to not draw attention. The mascot of the Fabians was the tortoise, you know, slow and steady wins the race which, by the way, I will connect to toward the end of this episode in a couple of minutes. It's a little far-middle foreshadowing, perhaps. But make no mistake, you know, back to the Fabians, they wanted the same thing all leftists desire, including the more violent Marxists in the end, right? They wanted global domination of the left with Fabian dictators at the helm of nations. But to get there, the Fabians started with academia. The left always saw the power of controlling academia, Vladimir Lenin himself said, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. The left on college campuses took that to heart with indoctrination of students. And now it's grown across much of government, media and culture. The Fabians pioneered their own version of this. You You probably heard of the London School of Economics, right? One of the premier elite academic institutions in the world, founded in 1895, founded by who? By the Fabians. The original benefactor that funded the founding of the London School of Economics stated in the estate document that a trust should be put towards advancing the Fabian Society's objectives in any way the trustees deem advisable. That's what they put in the trust. George Bernard Shaw that I mentioned, one of those Fabian celebrities, he was a founding father of the London School of Economics when it began classes. And once the Fabians had something like the London School of Economics in its hands, The left began to enjoy propagation across all segments of society. More European billionaires were educated at the London School of Economics than any other academic institution in the world. Many Nobel laureates are London School of Economics grads or staff, including one of my idols, by the way, economist Friedrich Hayek, proven not everyone, of course, associated with the London School of Economics is a leftist. And the London School of Economics has minted 55 heads of government across its history. And as I said, government was also in the Fabian's long range sites. The London School of Economics helped to create the British Labor Party, which is the mainstream political party of the center left in the UK. Now the Fabians, along with its growing cohorts in academia in places like the London School of Economics and in government, with major parties like labor, they began to subsume the scientific community. And if it seems like many premier scientists from the early 1900s and during the Depression and the Cold War after World War II were communist sympathizers, it's because they indeed were, or they often were. They made sure leftist ideology crept into everything from the scientific method itself to research and writings. And they often willingly ceded technology secrets to the Soviets and the Chinese, which in the case of the latter continues to this day. And the Fabians weren't just wildly successful in British academia, they went global. Um, One of the most fertile grounds they found beyond Great Britain, of course, was in the United States. Um, The Fabians, I mentioned two institutions I wanted to talk about. The other one um, were German exiles of the leftists and close cousins to the Fabians, the Frankfurter School um, that was in Germany. And Hitler, basically, when he came to power as a fascist, He kicked them out, made way to the U.S., the Frankfurter School leaders did. And if you look at institutions such as Columbia and UC Berkeley, they historically eagerly welcomed many of the faculty from the German Frankfurter movement and the Fabians into their arms, and that influence would prove to be lasting to this day. Now you can start to see how healthcare devolved into that $2.3 trillion less efficient and dysfunctional mess it's been decades in the making by a methodical ground game of the left. Academia at elite colleges make healthcare policy arguments using leftist ideology. Healthcare is a basic human right, economy is a scale with universal healthcare, et cetera. Government leaders educated at those same academic institutions, they enact said policies for healthcare. So you've got Obamacare, Medicare and Medicaid expansion, etc. The STEM community in the labs and in the medical journals. They make sure the process is wired to further reinforce the ideology by manufacturing the favored views and outcomes at the expense of the scientific method and legitimate science. And then large corporations and other influential stakeholders, they position themselves to align with these other stakeholders and their ideology so that the corporation or the influential institution can appropriate value for themselves in the healthcare industry's journey leftward. Once that web is built, It just repeats itself over and over, growing larger and larger, to a stack that, again, measures $2.3 trillion high. Now let's connect to Rundown, someone I made mention of a few minutes ago when discussing the founding fathers of Fabianism. That's the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw. I want to connect him to the comments I've made in prior episodes of how extreme left and extreme right are often the same thing, The ends of the ideological spectrums wrap around to meet one another, and that similarity between left and right creates at times strange bedfellows, and more typically, right, sworn enemies of one another because familiarity breeds contempt. And there is no better example of how extreme left and extreme right overlap and at times admire one another than George Bernard Shaw. Consider a few of his assessments of some people on the extreme right and the extreme left that you may have heard of before. So here's Shaw on Mussolini, a far-right fascist, the right kind of tyrant. That's how Shaw assessed Mussolini. Leftists and fascists both love tyrants. How about Shaw on Joseph Stalin, a Georgian gentleman, not how I would describe the leftist murderer of upwards of 20 million people. How about Shaw on Hitler, a very remarkable man, so I guess Hitler was unfortunately remarkable, but I don't think in the way that Shaw was implying with his assessment. And by the way, Shaw didn't stop there. In 1933, Shaw was quoted praising Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin. He said, quote, they are trying to get something done and are adopting methods by which it is possible to get something done, end quote. As late as the Second World War, Shaw hoped that after defeat, that the Fuhrer would escape retribution and to, quote, enjoy a comfortable retirement in Ireland or some other neutral country, end quote. All three of these individuals who Shaw assessed, Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, they shared one thing in common. They were tyrants who rallied against the individual, against freedom, and against rights. And you can't get more different on background and leanings than George Bernard Shaw, Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, and Joseph Stalin. But there they are in a mutual admiration society, from the founder of the Fabians. We went down a few interesting rabbit holes or rabbit's holes. I'm not sure which is the correct uh, grammar for that this episode, didn't we? And a rabbit hole reminds me of one of Aesop's fables, the famous one of the tortoise and the hare. I mentioned that earlier with the uh, the mascot of the Fabians being the tortoise. Fable, I think, here is fitting for this episode because it makes the point of how slow and steady will usually win the race. And you remember how the story goes, I assume, right? A hare was making fun of a tortoise one day for being so slow. And the uh, the hare asked the tortoise, do you ever get anywhere, right? Enough sort of a mocking laugh. The tortoise said, yes, I do. I get there sooner than you think. I'll, I'll run a race against you to prove it. And of course, the hare was amused by this, you know, running a race against a slow tortoise. But he agreed to it just for the heck of it. And the fox, I think, in the story was the one that was acting as the judge. He marked the distance and he sort of started the, the runners off. So the rabbit or the hare was soon far out of sight. And um, to make the tortoise feel bad, sort of to mock him, he um, basically lay down beside the course to take a nap until the tortoise would catch up. But the tortoise kept going, slow and steady. And after time, passed the place where the rabbit or the hare was sleeping. And the rabbit stayed asleep, but when at last the hare woke up, the tortoise was near the goal. The hare ran as fast as he could, but he couldn't overtake the tortoise in time. And of course, right, the lesson here, the race is not always to the swift. Now, there is a variety of different versions of this fable. Another version from 1891 by the poet George Murray, he flipped the title. Instead of the tortoise and the hare, he called it the hare and the tortoise, and he flipped the moral in another way. So in Murray's version, a hare sleeps during the race, seeing that she is likely to win, and it was a she in his version. But this time, the hare wakes up in time just to catch her mistake, leaping from her slumber, and sort of the the text of this version reads, Scared by the sight with all her speed and strength, she galloped in a winner by length. So the story ends um, with basically the rabbit winning the race. And Murray was making the point in his version, I suppose, that there is no need to be slow and steady if you wake up in time and you're ready to make up for lost time. Uh, That's the type of ending we need if you like individual rights and capitalism in the free market and you want to preserve them to survive this onslaught of the left. Now, what they taught us as little kids back then applies to geopolitics today. The left has been progressing slow and steady all across the globe. Western Republican democracies have been asleep with a false sense of security. It's time to wake up because the race is almost won by the wrong side. And speaking of races, let's close out this week with connecting to racing cars and the rock group that made it part of their visual brand in the video era. The band is ZZ Top. Two days ago, May 15th, officially became ZZ Top Day in the state of Texas. Declared back in 1997 by a governor back then by the name of George Bush. Um, Guitarist Billy Gibbons, he made it on my list of top 10 rock guitarists of all time. Find out where he ranked and who he was alongside on nickdilias.com under the commentary section. Um, The best ZZ Top single, in my opinion, just got paid. Awesome song, even better live. Check it out live if you can on YouTube. Um, Best ZZ Top album, I got to go with Eliminator. It was the biggest seller for them by far, the Find MTV, high school time warp for me, so I just got to go with Eliminator for a lot of reasons. What an episode. You know, the bird on the mound, the $2.3 trillion elephant of waste in the room called the U.S. healthcare industry, the tortoise movement known as the Fabians, Shaw's assessment of tyrants, rabbit holes, fables, and bearded rock bands. I'm tired. I will see you next week and enjoy the weather.